south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 208, covering the week of March 9th through March 13th, 2020. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. You'll get our daily dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday. Also, don't forget to download our free mobile app. Just go to your app store on your mobile device, search for Abbeville Institute, and it'll come up with our app. That's our portal on the go. You can get all of our lectures, our podcasts, of course, access to our website. It's also, you know, again, free of charge. So that is yours just because we like you and just because you like us. But if you do like us and if you like what we do, please consider a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute. You can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. Just go to abbevilleinstitute.org, click on that support tab, and click on donor options. It'll take you right out to our donate page. Also, click on that shop tab. Get your Abbeville Institute apparel. And you can advertise the Institute while you wear some really great stuff. We've got um, t-shirts, hats, golf shirts, fleece, fleece. I mean, I know it's getting here to be spring now, and People are going to get outdoors more, but uh, we still have those things. Golf towels, a lot of great stuff at our online store. So get your Abbeville Institute apparel. It is embroidered, high-quality stuff. And always, please share our material around on social media. If you like what we do, if you like this podcast, let people know about it. Rate our podcast where you get your podcasts. It's a great way to support our mission, to help explore what's in true valuable in the Southern tradition, and... Also, let people know and grow our audience organically, which is the most important thing. So, all that said, let's talk about the material for the week. And, of course, I'm coming to you now from the formerly coronavirus-free state of Alabama. We've now had our first cases of coronavirus, so we're going to see what happens. We've had outbreaks before of all kinds of infectious diseases, some worse than others. And this podcast hopefully won't be stopped uh, from that. We're... Everyone just needs to take precautions and be careful and be safe and um, do what you can to keep yourself from getting sick. Um, and uh, we'll still continue to do this. Of course, online is a great way to stay up to date with things. And uh, we'll still continue to produce content at the Abbeville Institute as we can. So um, nothing should be interrupted. But uh, we do have our summer school coming up in June. Right now, that's still a full go. So if you... Uh, do want to get involved in that, just go out to abbevilleinstitute.org again and check our um, our webpage there and click on that You're Invited section and you have all the information for the summer school. It should be a grand summer school if everything continues to go as planned. So right now everything is going as planned. We're, we're still planning on the summer school, still planning on seeing everyone there. So um, we'll just take it every day and see how it goes. But uh, all of that said, let's talk about the material for the week and um, somebody had sent me an email uh, with a YouTube channel, which I'm not going to name because I don't. The person doesn't need to get any more views, which would of course increase their visibility on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. So it's better when you see these things, you just avoid them uh, once you know they're there, than to click on them because clicking on them means that these people get more publicity. 
So, um, and potentially more revenue. Uh, this particular individual has a channel that's dedicated to disproving the lost cause myth. I mean, there and it's it's snarky, it's condescending, it's straw man oriented, but he tries to do it with comedy, and he sets up a situation where there's two people, but he's both people. One's a Confederate, and one's a Union, and the Confederate sounds like a complete idiot, and he reads off comments or tweets that he finds that are completely ridiculous and stupid, and then he responds to them as the logical, very intelligent uh, Union man, the, the Yankee who knows what he's talking about. And every time he does, he takes a drink when the Confederate... Uh, Soldier says something stupid, and so he ends up drinking half a bottle, kind of thing. Um, this is indicative of what we're up against and why the Abbeville Institute exists. And uh, it's it's problematic because, I mean, here's a channel that has uh, not that many views. I mean, they're in the thousands. Um, and, of course, he has a Patreon account. People are paying him to do these things. But this is why I've said before, we are up against climbing Mount Everest with flip-flops, shorts, and a t-shirt on, and we got to get to the top somehow. It is a daunting task. You see, what this individual does with these straw man arguments and everything that's usually used against us is that um, he doesn't realize it. I mean, the, the people that support our side are so minuscule, so few in number, that this is not even necessary. I would be, you'd be hard pressed to find any major history department in the United States, at any university or college, um, even in your high schools, where you don't have righteous cause mythology being taught every single day of the week, and where you would have, I mean, I, I could guarantee you, you might be able to find a handful of places where somebody teaches the other way. I mean, it's it just really doesn't even exist anymore. This is why... When these people make these channels and they're supposed to, they're getting these neo-Confederates, they're getting all these lost cause people. We got to show them how smart we are, and these people are all dupes and they don't know anything. There's so few people out there that are on our side, and of course, many of them that try to articulate our side don't do a very good job of it. This is why the Abbeville Institute exists because we want you to have the intellectual ammunition you need to go out and actually do these things. But my advice to you would be to avoid this stuff for the most part. This uh, individual sent me the email, said that, you know, why don't you debate this person? Why would I do that? Why would I waste my time debating them? And, of course, he says, why would I waste my time doing this? Nobody cares. Um, it's because your position has already been essentially entrenched in every single university and college, of, you know, every higher education institution, the academy across the United States. Everyone believes you're a side. I mean, this is what I laughed about the 1619 Project. People don't think the war was about slavery. Uh, they don't? I mean... So this is, this is highly problematic. Um, because we have this great straw man out there that, we have, that everyone has to push over. Um, and I find it funny, but I also find it you know, depressing at times because it's just... It's, it's stupid. It's stupid. Now... And this actually plays in the material we have for the week. You know, on Friday we had Jack Marcourt, one of our resident scholars in uh, in Japan, write a piece about the economy. You know, it's uh, Bill Clinton used the phrase "it's the economy, stupid" in 1992, and in 1860 that was a big issue. Now, this actually gets into this question of slavery. Why slavery? And we also have a book review that gets to this issue this week too. But why slavery? 
Why was slavery important? And I've mentioned it on this podcast. It was an important issue. I mean, I think one of the things that we do a disservice if somebody, well, slavery wasn't an issue. It was an issue. But you have to ask the question, why was it an issue? And Jack gets into that, but I'll address it because this this particular video channel does something about that too. And, uh, you know, using straw man, well, the war wasn't about slavery. It's all about economics. Well, no, no. What does that mean? Well, that means that it really was economic, really was slavery behind the economics. So therefore it is about slavery. Or Southerners were trying to expand and add slave states. So it's really about slavery. And in fact, in fact, this guy says, well, yeah, I mean, nobody was talking about, he brings up the Corwin Amendment, which should have been called the Lincoln Amendment because uh, Abraham Lincoln's fingerprints were all over that. And of course, the Corwin Amendment would have made slavery in the Southern states perpetual. It could not have been abolished by the United States government. It could only have been abolished by the states themselves, which of course is the understanding, original understanding of the Constitution. Southerners are not running around saying that uh, Massachusetts can't abolish slavery. One of their concerns, of course, was that if they brought their slaves into Massachusetts or Pennsylvania or New York, that those slaves would be freed. And in fact, Washington wrestled with this uh, when he was in in Philadelphia because Pennsylvania had passed a law that if your slave is in the state for six months or longer, they're free. So he just cycled his slaves out every six months. So he was dealing with that issue. Now, I mean, this was the great question. Um, Can the states essentially say if somebody brings their property into another state that that slave property? And of course, that's hard for us to, to imagine here in 2020 that people were property. But when you're looking at this historically, this was a major question, a major issue. Well, can you do that and not have your slaves be freed? And so su- certainly Southerners were concerned about that. There's no doubt about it. Those that had large numbers of slaves didn't know if they were able to go into these states with slave property and if that slave property would then be made illegal. So the Dred Scott decision supposedly dealt with that issue, I think, uh, ineffectively, certainly. And, of course, uh, created all kinds of problems in and of itself. Uh, that said, um, the issue about slavery was not a moral issue. And I think that's where we get hung up on this term slavery. When you say slavery, people think, well, yeah, Northerners wanted to get rid of it because it was an immoral, immoral institution. Most Northerners didn't want to get rid of slavery because they thought it was an immoral institution. They didn't want the competition with slave labor in contrast to free wage labor. They didn't like slavery. They thought it was bad. But they weren't really concerned about the plights of blacks in the South. I mean, this was not something they they thought about. Um As long as it wasn't in their state, they didn't care if it was in your state. In fact, when you look at the debates over the Corwin Amendment, this was made clear by Northerners. I mean, we're just trying to say, you can keep your slaves. We just don't want slaves in the Western Territory. We don't want slaves there. And so that became the big issue. It was about the territories. And certainly Southerners wanted the ability to carry slave property into the territories. Well, why would they want to do that? Particularly when the climate and geography of those territories may not have been conducive to slave labor. I mean, there was some question about that. When you look at uh, slavery in the cities, or you look at industrial slavery, you look at different types of the use of slaves over time. These were major questions, labor questions, economic questions. At its heart, you know, slavery was an economic institution with a social component to it because you had uh, over 3 million blacks in the South, and at the time it was thought that maybe these people couldn't integrate into society as citizens. Now, they integrated into society as slaves, but maybe as citizens, and even Lincoln himself was concerned about that 
which is why he pursued a colonization policy up until the day he died. He thought that colonization was the way to rid the United States of a potential racial war. And so, or the abuse of blacks, or whatever the case may be, in northern or southern states. So, when you look at this issue, southerners certainly wanted to expand slavery. They wanted to add slave states. Yes, why did they want to do that becomes the question. Why slavery? Why did they want to add these states? Well, because what did that mean? If they add states that are slave states, it means not just that slavery will be protected, because that was, it was protected in the states anyways. What it meant is that their political economy would be protected. Their agrarian lifestyle would be protected because northern interests were moving in a direction towards manufacturing and commerce. It was the Hamiltonian system, banking, finance. And these things were uh, certainly antagonistic towards the southern way of life. So you had two sections looking to control the reins of power in the central government. So it did come down to economy. It came down to power. And you clearly see this in 1815, when the North certainly considered seceding because they didn't think they were ever going to win another presidential election. They didn't think they were going to win, so why not just get out of the Union at that point and let the South have it? You see, it's always about power. Who controls the central authority? Now, if we had real federalism in the United States and the central government with limited powers, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter at all who was president, how many, I mean, who controlled the Congress, because all you're dealing about there is international commerce, interstate, between state commerce, and, of course, defense. I mean, essentially, that's it. If you look at the enumerated powers of the Constitution, this is all you're talking about. But if you start adding in all these other things, internal improvements, central banking, tar- I mean, tariffs. Look, I mean, tariffs are a tax, so there is an issue there. But you start adding all these things in, and that makes controlling the central authority that much more important. So... It was always about power, political power. Michael Holt pointed this out in the political crisis of the 1850s. It's about political power. Certainly slavery was an issue. I think you can't say it wasn't. That's where we get into trouble. And Jack points this out. I mean, look, control of the central authority meant you controlled the taxing power of the United States. And if you control the taxing power of the United States, you can control the spoils of the United States. This is why John C. Calhoun said, look, we should consider trying to forge an alliance with these Western farmers and support internal improvements, because if we do that, they'll side with us. And if you look at what happened after the war and the fact that many Western farmers formed the populist movement or were were part of that, it's because they realized in the 1850s and 60s they cut a bad deal with New England merchants and mid-Atlantic merchants, bankers, and they were getting the short end of the deal. They got their internal improvements, they got their free Western land, but they also got central banking which was ruining them. And they got uh, you know, a political economy that didn't fit the agrarian life of the West and the Midwest. It just didn't work. So they wanted out. And the South was an agreement on that for the most part. They, I mean, this was the populist movement. I mean, it's very clear if you look at these things in the big picture and what's happening. We get down to the mind, well, these people were saying slavery, and these people were saying this about farms. And No, what it's really about is power. It's always about power. It's always about political economy. So to say the war, the economic reasons behind the war were important is to state a, a fact. I mean, it's, it's without question. Uh, Lincoln himself said these things. So um, 
these straw man arguments that are made, well, the Southerners say the war wasn't about slavery. Well, I mean, certainly the war was about maintaining the Union. Uh, and Lincoln said that as well. I mean, look, we got to keep the Union together. And, of course, and doing that, slavery was going to be ended at some point. At least it was considered that was going to happen. Um, but then again, it would have been ended if the South had gained their independence probably anyways because Jefferson Davis had made overtures to foreign powers that they were going to do that should Britain or France recognize the Confederacy. So, uh, and this is what Southerners said, of course, those who were against secession, slavery has never been better protected. If we leave the Union, it's, it's in trouble. It's never been better protected right now. If what we're fighting for is slavery, well, then we need to stay in the Union because it's well protected. This was said quite openly in Georgia, in fact. So um, when you look at these issues, again, straw man arguments, it's, and you have this holier than thou and more intelligent, you know, condescending, arrogant jerk who gets on YouTube and um, makes out like he's smarter than every Southerner ever mentioned in these things. I mean, this is the problem. But you have an entire book produced, uh, published by Regnery History in 2015 by Edward Bonekemper, the late Edward Bonekemper, who uh, wrote The Myth of the Lost Cause. And his entire goal of this book was to show that the war was all about slavery, that Lee was a terrible general, that uh, the South um, was just an awful place, that Grant was a, was a better general than Lee. I mean, this is enti- he, he's, he wrote several books based on this single premise. And so he condensed all those arguments into one book. And John Watley produced a pretty good book review of this, I think, where he went through point by point. He says, you should own this book because it's the, it's the legal argument if you're a lawyer against the other side. I mean, this is the prosecution of the South. And so if you want to know how to attack, how to oppose these particular positions, then you need to have a good knowledge of this particular argument. And so you go through and you read it. It's sharpening your pencil, so to speak. How do you refute the argument that the war was all about slavery? How do you refute the argument that Robert E. Lee was a terrible general, among others? So when you look at the piece, I mean, he says, and I'll, and I'll go through it, um, he says, uh, Watley says there's seven particular theses of the myth of the lost cause. Slavery was a benevolent, benevolent institution, but was dying on its own before northern radicals waged war on their own countrymen to eliminate it at once. Um, he's saying this is, Bone Kemper says that's a myth. It wasn't benevolent, it, and it wasn't dying on its own. Well, I mean, I think that um, this is up for historical debate. It depends on who you read and what was happening. Um, he says the protection of states' rights, not slavery, was a central cause of secession. Well, uh, and I just addressed that to a point where um, Southerners were concerned about federalism and, of course, power and how that related to things. So were Northerners at one time. I mean, we know that. The question was over nationalism. What would the national authority do? And not just that, how could you control the spoils from the central authority? Uh, the Confederacy faced such great odds that it had no chance of winning the war. Uh, Watley says the South could have won the war if they had adopted a different approach. And I think that's true. I mean, look, the South did some things very recklessly. The South could have won, um, but things didn't go in their favor. Uh, Robert Lee, who nearly ever overcame the odds, was one of the greatest generals of history. And, of course, Bone Kemper says he's an awful general. And 
We know that's not true. Uh, James Longstreet was responsible for the Confederacy's loss at Gettysburg and thus the loss of the war. Of course, Gettysburg wasn't, I mean, didn't lose the war. In fact, you can make an argument, as Clyde Wilson has, I think, several times, that Gettysburg wasn't really even a loss in that the army was able to move back into the South. If it was a loss, they would have been captured. U.S. Grant was incompetent. He was a butcher who won the war with brutality and superior numbers. And, of course, Bone Kemper says, no, Grant wasn't that. But, of course, he was. He understood he could throw his men at lines like a cold harbor and still win because he had reserves. The South didn't. And the North prevailed by waging unprecedented total war against the South. Total war might be a strong word, but certainly hard war. Um, this is uh, particularly near the end of the war. Um, and, I mean, you could say total war tactics were used at times, particularly in South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia. So all these things are part of the myth of the lost cause. And, of course, I mean, you can go through these point by point. Watley does. Do a, he does a very good job of this, going through point by point and refuting these particular positions. But, of course, Bone Kemper would have said, well, I mean, you're just regurgitating lost cause myths, and all these things are incorrect. I mean, this is where we're really at a stalemate with this, because you have evidence... You have historians on both sides of the, of the issue. This is why there are few facts in history but interpretation. Um, if you read Eugene Genovese on point number one, Genovese says slavery was brutal at times and inhumane, but he also points out all of the other parts of it. And Fogel and Engerman, Fogel and Engerman and Time on the Cross, this book was just vilified because um, they said, look, slavery in terms of material comfort, in terms of economic benefit, wasn't as bad as people make it out to be. Um, and that book stirred a tremendous amount of vitriol, vile responses, because how dare you say this? But when you look at the number of people who have written about this issue and really gotten into it, again, comparing apples to apples, um, it's very hard to argue with Fogel and Engerman. Uh, we have a, a perception of things built by popular media. And, of course, our own minds, dark minds, get into this. I mean, any slavery is, a, is terrible because it prohibits freedom. And it is an abusive system. This was always the problem with it because you could abuse people. And that, that became the greatest problem um, with the institution. And so... That's where our dark minds run with that, of course. And there was abuse. And anytime there is one singular episode of abuse, it's a, it could be a bad institution. Of course, was slavery dying? Well, I think in certain parts of the South it was. Certainly it wasn't in Louisiana. People were making lots of money on sugar. Uh, rice plantations were doing well. So, I mean, it wasn't dying in, area, in certain areas. I mean, cotton plantations were doing well. Um so would it have died out? Who knows? It might have existed for another 20, 30, 40 years. Lincoln, in fact, was willing to let it exist that long near the end of the war at the Hampton Roads Conference. You come back in, we'll, let, we'll postpone this 13th Amendment. Push that out. We'll do it. So you can come back in, we'll figure out what to do with slaves at that point. I mean, so if the war is simply just about slavery, why would he even make that concession? But there's all kinds of things to get in. I mean, look, this is, this is the righteous cause myth, and it's problematic. It's highly problematic. And then, of course, as part of that righteous cause myth, anything that's bad about America was based in the South. And I think Clyde Wilson's piece and um, Jim, uh, Jim Peterson's piece on Monday uh, on the Klan and Clyde Wilson's piece on Thursday about 
Southerners in film is quite indicative of this. He's, Clyde points out any any evil character, he said this before, is going to be a Southerner, right? They're going to have a Southern accent, even if they're not in the South. Or the weird character is all going to have Southern accents. I mean, this is ten, generally what happens. Um, Clyde points out a number, this is Southerners in war films, that even in the many of these great films, they don't show Southerners, or they don't really get into the fact that these people are Southern. Now, that's not always the case, and I think there's been a conscious effort in some more recent films to do this. You look at Hacksaw Ridge, which is excellent. Uh, I mean, it's all about, you look at you look at the Pacific, you look at We Were Soldiers, um, you look at these films, and uh, they certainly have Southerners portrayed properly, but in Saving Private Ryan, for example, um, the one Southern character is a lunatic, right? I mean, that's the problem. Um, so you get that portrayal, which is, I mean, that's the real problem. Um, and I think that this is generally what happens. You know, people think about, I, I was, there was a great um, television series, uh, Justified, which takes place in Kentucky. Uh, it's it's a great series, um, but the the main bad guy in the film, of course, everyone's a Southern, but it, he's a neo-Nazi, and when you go into their lair in the first season, he's got Confederate flags all over the place. I mean, this is the bad guy. Clear bad guy is this. But at the end, what I will say about that particular show, that character was redemptive, and I think that it's not that he renounced everything in his life, but he, he was the most sympathetic character, even the lawman is not as sympathetic as the bad guy. Um, so it's interesting. That that's a great show, Justified. If you're looking for a crime western, so to speak, um, I, I think it's a wonderful show. Uh, but uh, certainly you have this this idea of, of uh, anything bad. You know, If you want to make money, we'll just show the South to be a bad place and people are going to flock to it because this is in the dark minds of the North. This is what things are like. Uh, and then, of course, you have this piece on the Klan, which by Jim Peterson, where he shows conclusively that the Klan was, particularly when you get to the second Klan, this was a northern institution. Uh, I mean, it's a civics organization in the north, primarily. He talks about the great rally and Klan rally in Washington, D.C. in the 1920s, where you had people openly walking down. Uh, walking openly in Washington, D.C. without their hoods on. I mean, this is, a lot of women were involved in that. This is a progressive organization. And, of course, I, I think back to, um, uh, there's a book, Beyond the Mask of Chivalry, and um, where uh, this, uh, my roommate in graduate school said that when this book was presented in his reading seminar, all the progressive Northerners were highly upset about that book because essentially the book says the Klan is a progressive organization. It's progressive. And, oh, no, 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 that's not progressive. It's not progressive. Well, they said they were progressive, and they supported all kinds of progressive policies. I mean, that's the issue. Uh, the Klan was progressive in its advocacy of things like the New Deal, for example. They loved the New Deal. Even before that, they were, they were supporting things like prohibition and uh, women's suffrage. I mean, this was this is where Margaret Sanger went out and, of course, spoke to Klan rallies because she thought that I mean, anyone that wanted to hear a message, she would speak to those Klan. Or at least one. We know that she spoke at least one, but um, probably spoke to more because she mentioned that there was others that were interested in her message. We just don't know if she did or not, but um, probably did. I mean, can't say conclusively, so it's, it's a guess. 
But we know that this was a progressive organization, that it was dedicated to a white Protestant America, and that it wasn't centered in the South. I mean, certainly there were Klan members in the South, but places like Indiana and Ohio and Midwestern states, which of course, during the war and before the war, had laws against blacks even living in those states. So, I mean, this was certainly part of this Northern ideology. Slavery was okay if you kept it bottled in the South. You didn't want it to expand anywhere. Of course, blacks were okay as long as you kept them bottled in the South. Didn't want them to expand anywhere. And when they did, then you saw horrible lynchings and acts of violence and other things. So this is a bigger issue. And I think that's something that we've said on this Abbeville Institute many, many times. It's a bigger issue than just the South. And why is the South always painted with these horrible images when this is an American situation? It's what Larry Tye said about pro-slavery ideology. This was an American ideology. If you're looking for pro-slavery ideology being a cause of the war, you're looking in the wrong place because Northerners were advocating this stuff before Southerners. And of course, Southerners were learning in Northern institutions, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, which Yale in particular, and Brown, but Yale in particular had some of the most ardent pro-slavery ideologues among the faculty. This is where Southerners went to school. So um, I think it's it's laughable when you get into these situations where people say that all this stuff points to the South. Everything that ails us, everything that ails the United States comes from the South. The Klan is, I mean, I think Jim Peterson does a tremendous job blowing that entire myth apart. Um, even some of the newest literature says that, I mean, this is on the Klan, says, you know, there's not a whole lot of evidence that uh, this thing was even real except in the minds of Northerners. Uh, one of the, uh, I think it's Parsons wrote this book entitled Ku Klux, where she says that. I mean, the Klan basically was created by the North in their own mind in newspapers. It's, it's a boogeyman, so to speak. It's the straw man to attack the South. The boogeyman to attack the South. And then finally, the last piece of the week, just a brief mention, we had a nice piece by Karen Stokes on, the, uh, on a forgotten spiritual uh, hero of the South. Uh, Daniel Baker, um, and he's from he's from uh, Georgia, but um, um, founded a uh, uh, founded a college in Texas. He went all over the United States, and of course, he was very important uh, in the Episcopal Church. Um, and so, you have these spiritual leaders. You have these people that are often forgotten. And, of course, many of his descendants would serve in the Confederate Army. Um, and so I think that this is, we mentioned these little things that are important, and Southerners important in, in modern institutions. Um, even the, the hymn, Amazing Grace, right? When you look at a, a theological or a gospel tune, I mean, uh, when you think of amazing, when you think of Christianity and you think of Christian hymns, Amazing Grace is the one that always comes to mind. And, of course, the tune itself was written by a Confederate singing Billy Walker. So how much of a stamp do, does the South have on modern America? And I think it's very clear it's tremendous. All right, so we had a great week at the Institute. Again, stay safe out there. Uh, be vigilant, protecting yourself from potentially infectious diseases like the coronavirus, even the flu and the cold. I mean, you don't want to get those things either. So stay vigilant and uh, I uh, hope you enjoyed this uh, episode of the, of the Week in Review at the Abbey of Institute. Until next time. 
Yep. Yeah.